Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, along with CPA Allison Reif Martin, Philip interviews IPO and SPACs expert Sandy Martin. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not a indicative of future performance. And now, here's Philip. All righty, we are back with another episode of the Ask Philip podcast, and your favorite guest host, Allison Rife Martin, is back. And for those of you, I don't announce it every episode, so let me announce it. You know, Allison and I have teamed up to do about 10 episodes. That, that's the current deal. I think I can get her to do more, but we're doing 10, <laughs> we're doing 10 episodes on deal makers, which is which are people who are involved in business and uh, helping businesses grow and reach their goals. And also we're talking about buyouts and everything in the series. So our, our guest today is Miss Sandy Martin. And Sandy, actually, I'm excited about this episode um, because Sandy helps companies communicate their message to, you know, when they're getting ready to go public, right? So, um, so thanks for coming, Sandy. Yes, thank you very much for having me. This is going to be uh, fun. I love I love both of you guys, so this will be a blast. I, I, I stuttered because I was like, "Is it just when they go public, or you know, that, 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 that's not one of the questions, but that is a question. Like, is it is it just when they're getting ready to go public that you help them communicate their message? You know, every company that wants to make money, raise capital, and grow needs to communicate to their investors. Every every company, so. We typically, with Denard Lascar Investor Relations, we deal with primarily sort of pre-IPO, pre-SPAC, or um, IPOs or public companies that are um, that are already out there. But in in sort of the big ecosystem of companies, every company should should worry or be concerned about how they speak to investors and how they consistently communicate to. Whoever owns the business. Absolutely. So how'd you get into that business? So it's a crooked road that gets you there, right? My dad's big advice to me since he was an electrical engineer and didn't know anything about balance sheets. He said, hey, whatever you do in college, make sure you get an accounting degree first, because whatever you do in business you need to know what a PL is, what a balance sheet is, and you need to be able to, to help help uh, yourself that way. So went into accounting, went to work in the traditional public accounting big eight, which is back in the day, it was called the big eight, which are the big uh, international audit firms, was an auditor for a number of years, really worked my way into SEC reporting and financial planning and analysis. And at that time worked at Pier 1 Imports and we had a big crisis at the CFO level. And the CEO walked into my office one day unannounced and said, um, I want you to be in charge of investor relations. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what is investor relations? And they, he said, don't worry, we're going to be on a call this afternoon with all the investors. 
and just give them estimates. Just don't give them any real numbers. Just give them ranges. And that was my on-the-job training for investor relations. And I've loved it ever since. <laughs> wow. Talk about on the spot. I was going to say, how quickly did it take you to learn all the, the rules and parameters of what you could and couldn't say? You know, it was, uh, uh, I was at Pier 1 15 years and 10 of those years I was doing investor relations. And so I would say I became more comfortable after two years of really being beat up by the investors. So the investors aren't kind. If you report something that they don't understand, they question you. If you, if they have uh, a question about your strategy, they beat you up. And so kind of the the College of Hard Knocks there for a couple of years. And I finally figured out kind of what they're thinking. And the CFO, I was not the CFO at the time, and the CFO didn't want to spend his whole life on calls with investors. So being a CPA and understanding the accounting, I could really answer all the CFO questions. And so that was a great training ground for me over that period of time. Hmm. Yeah, that I guess that's that's a valuable combination of skill sets because to understand numbers and be able to communicate puts you like in the unicorn space, right? Because you know, I, I know some CPAs that um, are super. This is not Allison. Allison is like you; she's a hybrid, but that are super smart, but like you know, can't look you in the eye when they talk. Uh, so yeah, that's a that's a good skill set. Well, I've been told I'm I'm bilingual in that <laughs> I talk sort of left brain, right brain, so I can talk numbers and I can also talk strategy and communication. So so I like sort of being a real person, approachable, can communicate and be able to look at the numbers. So investor relations professionals used to be PR people, but they've kind of evolved into being a little bit more numbers people. And and, and, a, and a, lot, a lot of the analysts, a lot of the ones that are... Um, and maybe I, I know now that's the case, but uh, uh, with Pier One, were they were they still the young twenty year old that they would put on the call to just you know be young and rude and you know ask ask crazy questions? That is totally the case. Yeah, the 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 gray haired institutional investors don't get on those calls. It's always the uh, punks that get on the call <laughs> that are really whiz. They're great, they're smart, but they're abrupt and they're um, they're really kind of scary smart. Yeah. Are you finding it now with technology and the instant access to data harder to come up with and how to better communicate a company's position or you know financial numbers? Because they already seem to know the answer beforehand. I don't think so. I think it's it's um, you know all about consistency and communication. We try to take companies and say, okay, what is your investment thesis? So um, what's your TAM, which is your total addressable market? What's your competitive um, environment? Who, Who competes in your industry? And what's your niche? And really that DNA of the company, what sets them apart from other companies is is the part that really uh, it's different for every company, and so I think I think investors can get access to a lot of information, 
but they really want to know, you know, what's the quality of management? What what's in the head of the CEO and CFO? How do they how are they going to allocate capital and spend their money? And investors want to know that. They want to know where the money's going to go, where the assets are going to go, how much cash flow, how quickly. If I love watching Shark Tank, but if you watch Shark Tank, they're really good investors and they ask those hard questions and they want to, just like Mr. Wonderful, they want to know when the money's coming back. So uh, I don't think it'll ever change in that way, but it is good that information is out there. And I think they've, they're more prepared. They come and they've done their homework. And, and you, um, you kind of answered this, but I I, want to just, go deeper in case people listening didn't pick it up um or or maybe I didn't interpret it right but um when does a management team start crafting their message and initially I was thinking for going public but now after listening to you I'm like actually you got to a lot of companies nowadays are getting money before they go public and so they have to have a message like well before then right they do in fact I get um, I'm part of the Dallas Angel Network, so I get a lot of pitch decks from uh, startups. And a lot of millennials and or startup companies think the, um, the pitch deck is sort of where it starts. No, it really starts with a strategic business plan. And that is really kind of looking at the SWOT analysis, which are your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. That's looking at the um, kind of the the business, the operations, going through each element and really figuring out what makes me unique. Why is there a moat around my business? Why is, is is there barriers of entry into what I do? And you really have to establish all that, which is part of the investor presentation. You have to establish that when you structure the business. Um, and so I think, honestly, the business plan is step one. And then you start figuring out your uh, elevator speech to investors. Then you lay out uh, an executive summary or fact sheet that says, here's our investment thesis in a nutshell. And then the investor deck is where the management team sits down with investors one-on-one and takes them through the business takes them through the big picture, the market, the competitive environment, and then specifically the operations. So I think, yeah, your question's a good one. When should they start crafting the message? As soon as you um, have a business uh, idea in mind, you need to start crafting the message. Hmm. Um, This just makes me think, I've been listening to a number of uh, talks with venture capitalists for small business owners in terms of when they would be ready to go to market to pitch to a venture capital um, capitalist. And what they have told me is they won't entertain anybody who, unless they have revenue of a million dollars and can demonstrate quick scalability. Is that something that you're seeing too? And how, what would your recommendation be to a business so that they don't get discouraged and think, well, I'll never be a million dollars, but I still want to get funding. Yeah. So, um, Early stage pre-revenue businesses typically raise capital through angel investors, friends and family, people that uh, want to take a flyer 
on a person that they know is uh, really going to be good at, at whatever the, the, the idea is. And then in the traditional way of raising capital, you get a few seed rounds and then you go series ABC through venture capitalists. And yeah, in, in the past, there's been a lot of criteria about venture capital and venture. I mean, they've been called vulture capitalists because they're really serious. They're not going to be warm and fuzzy like your angel investors. So the venture capitalists have criteria and then, uh, you know, private equity is the next level up, which are kind of vulture-ish too. Uh, and then within four to five years, private equity groups usually want to exit. Now, SPACs have turned that upside down, Allison, right? SPACs are now taking early stage companies public, which is a really spooky new time in history. Uh, but that's that's sort of the new vehicle for going public. And and unless unless you, you know what I I want to go, how do I want to do this? Because you you brought up SPACs and I and I definitely want to go there. But but before before we run SPACs, everybody everybody hold that pin real quick. Let me ask because you you were talking about something and I'm and I have an idea of my audience and who's listening and what questions they have, and so I I know a lot of them are thinking, okay, you know I want to grow my business, you know. Maybe I'm at a million, maybe I'm not at a million, but um, if I, if they're already building a business, you know, and they're already in business, what are some resources or people they can go to, or is maybe something that your firm helps with? But if they're like, okay, I want to get, you know, I want to attract the money, whether it be from banks or angels or whoever, um, where do I go to start? I don't know what my competitive advantage is. I don't know if I have a moat. Right, I don't, I don't know any of those things. Um, so, so where where should they go to figure those things out? Yeah, so there's uh, big and small pitch deck consultants out there. Which um, that's sort of if you Google search pitch deck consultants, we do that as well. We're a small ten person boutique firm that talks to private companies and basically dress them up for the party. Right? I mean, they some of them. Uh, usually good operators don't know much about their financials because they've been so good at their business and, and all of the business sort of circles around the fact that this owner has this business and grown it. But, but we come in and introduce the concept of enterprise value. What's your business worth? We'll take a look at what their business is worth. We'll, um, we'll introduce them to, to, to terms and metrics like adjusted EBITDA. So EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, that's sort of a proxy for cash. And small businesses usually have some things in their income statement that maybe is something that is specific to their business that's either a good or a bad. Maybe they run through marketing that if a company bought them, they'd go, we're not going to spend that kind of marketing. We've got our own marketing. And so that's adjustments to EBITDA. That's adjusted EBITDA. So we educate them on, hey, how do I present myself to the next level? Um, I, I talked to a CFO a few years ago that was the CFO of Callaway's Nursery. And Callaway's 
is, you know, the plant nursery, not the kid nursery. <laughs> and he said, our, our management team, brilliant, right? Really smart operators. But we went to, um, we went to a venture capitalist and we didn't have any competitive friction on our, we wanted them to buy us. Um, we didn't have any competition. We didn't understand what adjusted EBITDA was. We didn't position ourselves the way, uh, uh, you know, venture capitalists would want to look at us. And, and they sort of took us for uh, a valuation that was really small. Whereas if you kind of get professional, sophisticated help, you, in some cases, use an investment banker, even small investment bankers. You don't have to go to J.P. Morgan. There's small investment bankers. If you go to them and say, hey, I want to sell my business. I'm 65 years old. I'm ready to sell. They'll do the same things I'm talking about. They'll position you. They'll value your business. They'll look at competition. And then they'll broker your business. So you get five bids on your business uh, versus having to take the first bid. Got it. I think you're pretty much making a good argument for why you'd have a CPA review your financials before you go to an investment investor relations person. <laughs> Absolutely. It's got to be gap. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's the first question the banks ask, the investors ask is give me your audited financial statements. Uh, make sure it's um, um, generally accepted accounting principles. So Allison would have to be in the mix on all these. <laughs> I was going to say that also sounds like a good argument for making sure the business owner really understands their financials too. Like you're talking about with the the CFO you were talking about, if they don't understand their financials, how can you go pitch a good deal? Yeah, they have to understand what an outside group would look at. And if if the owner has hired his son and he's paying his son $200,000, but the private equity group would hire somebody in that same position for $60,000. That's an adjustment. They're going to go, nope, we're not going to have somebody that's not at market value. So that's a good example of an adjusted EBITDA number that they would look at. Got it. So, so going back to SPACs, what, what are SPACs and why are companies starting to use them more? So SPAC, and, uh, um, you know, I go to dinner with friends and they go, what's a SPAC? <laughs> SPAC is actually an acronym. So it stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And they've actually been around forever. Um, they used to be called um, a, a reverse merger into a shell company. What they are is a shell. They don't have an operating company. So if you looked at their P&L, they wouldn't have anything except assets, cash, waiting to buy uh, an operating company. So a SPAC has now decided, hey, we're going to do SPAC IPOs. And so they go out and say, hey, we're going to raise $300 million. We don't have a company yet, but we want to invest in... HVAC companies. We like that space. And they would go out over the next 18 to 24 months and buy an HVAC company for two to $300 million, or maybe a bigger company, in which case they get more financing. And that company merges with the SPAC 
and then they go public as as a uh, new public company. So why would somebody want to do that? Well, it's um, it's less risky in the marketplace. So if you are a traditional IPO and you go public and it just so happens that Facebook and Microsoft announce bad earnings on that day and the market drops, um, you're going to get, your valuation is going to get hit as a traditional IPO where it has nothing to do with you, but the, the amount of money you can raise in the capital markets in a traditional IPO, that's heavily regulated. So you have to file an S1, you have to jump all the hoops because the SEC is trying to protect all the investors. And then, and then you're sort of at the whim of whatever the market's doing that day on your stock price. So a SPAC is a merger. So it is less regulated. It's dependent on whatever the SPAC sponsors decide to merge with. And there are filings, uh, but it's an agreed upon number. The other thing I love about SPACs, and I'll tell you what I don't love about them in a minute, but the other thing I love is if you're announcing a merger under a SPAC, you get to release forward-looking projections of the business. And if you're doing an IPO, you don't. It's, mm. it's all confidential. So that's a huge benefit to the marketplace on um, looking at a SPAC and investing in a SPAC. They get to look at the forward-looking projections in the financials. Hmm. Uh, uh, well, what don't you like about a SPAC then? Or what's the downside to them? So, um, not nearly the regulations on uh, going public. It's very sort of, let's call it simple in quotes, because it's never simple. <laughs> but, but going um, through the SEC as a SPAC, you file an S4 because it's a merger. Um, so, the, the hoops you jump aren't near as high. And then the fact that you're going public, you're not going out there to, to sophisticated institutional investors to raise the money. You're relying on these five people, let's call it, on the SPAC sponsor to determine what company is going public. And so really early stage, sometimes pre-revenue, electric vehicle companies are going public. And that's just unheard of for... Uh, a company pre-revenue to go public because typically public companies have a history of operations, earnings, revenue growth, things that a traditional investor would go for. The other thing I'm cautious about SPACs are is right now, today, there's 400 blank check companies out there looking for target companies to buy. Wow. That's a bu- that's a bubble and a bust <laughs> waiting to happen. So um, I think that um, similar to the sort of 2000 internet bubble where people were frantically buying stamps.com and pets.com and all that, people were throwing their money. SPACs have gotten so popular that now retail investors, which is you and me, not the institutionals, but the individuals and the day traders, are starting to jump in and invest in SPACs. And these unproven companies, a year, two years, three years, if they go bust, you're going to lose all your money in a SPAC. 
The other thing that I'm cautious about SPACs now is celebrities, athletes, and politicians are now SPAC sponsors. Mm. Not good. <laughs> wow. So I didn't know that part. Wow. Well, yeah. yeah. I was thinking too. I would think a risk would be too if, if they can release forward-looking uh, projections and you invest based on that, you're thinking that's going to really happen. And then like you're saying, you don't, you're going to lose your money. Yeah. I, I do not want that to be, you know, where, where mom and pop decide, Hey, I'm finally brave enough. And uh, Alex Rodriguez is the Spock back sponsor. And I really liked him when I watched him when he was an athlete. So I'm going to go ahead and invest. I believe in Alex Rodriguez and I'm going to invest in, whatever he's investing in. I think his SPAC last week, and you you guys probably heard this, but I think he's investing in not sports teams, but entertainment type companies. So he's all excited about um, entertain, entertainment businesses, which, you know, in, in sort of pandemic world, who knows if that'll be uh, a hero or a heel. I don't know. Right, right, right. Interesting, definitely an interesting world. This is a, this is an interesting world. So, so, so speaking of, uh, uh, speaking of interesting, the 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 last ish question before we get to the fun question, uh, at least from me, is um, what are your thoughts on tokenization as a future option for companies, uh, you know, raise raising money, right? And and I guess what would that communication process be because it's more of a democratize it's 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 kind of similar but it's a different process so the cryptocurrency bitcoin so i've got a 27 year old son and and five years ago he said i think i'm gonna invest in bitcoin and i was like no (laughs) (laughs) um i i think it's um it's it's not regulated it's secondary markets um I think it's, I mean, with with Bitcoin and the level of valuation now of a Bitcoin, I think I think the regulators are going to have to step in and start looking at it. But there's no gold backing it. There's no problem to be solved. Um, you know, looking back on Wall Street, if you were um, trying to buy stocks or invest in Wall Street in the 1960s, there was a crisis because it was basically a paper crisis. It was limiting volume where you couldn't trade on the New York Stock Exchange because there wasn't enough paper out there (laughs) to make all the transactions. So the digitalization of the New York Stock Exchange created this DTC, which is the Depository Trust Corporation. And that way you and I can go out there digitally and invest in stocks um, and, and then get two or three days later, it settles. That solved a problem. I just don't think the cryptocurrencies are solving a problem. And it's it's kind of the wild, wild west to me. I, I, I kind of look at it as um, Mad Max and the Thunderdome or something. Mm-hmm. It's just not, I'm not there yet. And I may be too gray-haired to, to uh, ever be there. And it's funny you say that because I didn't know about the DTC and the and the, and the limited paper supply, and I and I consider myself a a, a finance historian, but um, but that's actually like, and and I won't, we won't have the time, but maybe offline, 
I, I can, I, cause I, when you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, actually, crypto does solve a problem that even digitization has, right? So I'm like, that is a, that's actually a, that's actually a plus for it because of rehop, rehypothecation, which, uh, you, you know, you may be familiar about, but that, that's one of the problems that crypto solves. But, but I'm like, oh, that's another parallel. So, um, so yeah, interesting. What's your favorite sport? My favorite sport is, uh, car racing (laughs) (laughs) which isn't really a sport but it's uh it's it's what we spend our time looking at so we we uh we go to car races we went to goodwood vintage racing over in england last year we're trying to figure out how to get to france to go to the le mans and uh we're, we're all things car racing so my husband races cars my son has now gotten into the sport and uh and so I've, I've sort of weaned myself off of um, NFL. I do like college football, and I love A&M because my son went there, and I helped him pay for it. So <laughs> I guess I'm college, maybe college football is my favorite sport. What's your favorite car then? I got to ask that since, you're, uh, since you love racing. So um, – I think, um, and my husband can probably hear me in the other room, but he, his race car is a Datsun 240Z, like a 40-year-old uh, race car. But I love watching Ferraris and Porsches and Daytona Coupes. Uh, my husband built uh, a 1965 Shelby replica. Mm-hmm. And so that I absolutely love. And there's, the, you know, that in the day that was sort of the, Ford versus Ferrari thing. So that movie was epic for us because we got to see the the real um, come to life version of what what uh, brought about the Shelby Cobra. Yes, wow. Steve was over That's here. Cool. Steve was over here nodding when you said it. I was like, I was like, oh, it must be a really nice car. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I am. I am. Uh, I am car illiterate, although, um, you know, I've never been into cars until they started integrating all this tech. And I was like, oh, okay, I think I, li- I, think I like cars now. But I'm, I'm still like, I'm not a, you know, it, you, can, you can tell me a car that's not like a Honda or Acura or regular car, and, and I'd be like, I don't know what that is. What, and my, but my wife will know because her family are car folks. Well, my, my big question mark on these electric vehicles and and. And it's great that we're all moving toward EV, but look around Texas and see what you see. You see huge trucks and, you know, 18 wheelers and just Ford F-250 extended cabs with diesel and gasoline. And how do you build a battery big enough? And then how do you take it to dinner and plug it in Mm -hmm. (laughs) to get enough power to come back home yeah i just don't understand how it's going to work without fossil fuels so a big question mark in my mind and then if you dig really deep into batteries unless you believe solar is the answer lithium batteries and how they create a lithium battery has some really ugliness around how you mine for that Mm. and so for all the green people out there I'm, i'm always like yeah, but 
you know, practically, how do you really have all electric cars? I don't get it. Well, I'm not even talking about electric. I'm talking about like the technology packages. Like, it's, I'm talking about like how you can plug your phone in. Like, your like the cars outside of electric are becoming like um, like phones. You know, everything right. everything you can do inside of it. I'm, you know, electric versus oil and gas. That's above my pay grade too. I don't understand how that works, but <laughs> but I do understand iPhones. And I was like, oh man, like my car is like my the car is like an iPhone now. It's crazy. It has gotten that way. The, the car is just an extension of a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the autonomous driving thing is, is out there. And um, I just think, I just think the Jetsons, I just want to get in my automobile, <laughs> elevate, go to the store, you know, like, like fly around in the sky. That would be the best kind of car. That would, I, I would agree with you on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that would be awesome. I can't wait to not drive. I hate driving. Uh, well, this is a great interview. Allison, do you have anything else? No, I've, I've really enjoyed this, and it's so great connecting with you again, Sandy. And if, if, if anybody's interested in you know learning more about you and your company and you guys helping them create a pitch deck or talk to investors, how, how, what's the best way for them to reach you? So um, Denard Lascar... Um, is the company, Denard Lascar Investor Relations, and S. Martin at denardlascar.com, D-E-N-N-A-R-D-L-A-S-C-A-R.com. And uh, would love to hear from you. This, But thank you guys so much for thinking of me and being patient through my move in December because I know I was a little missing in action in December, but um, I'm back and this was so much fun and I love connecting with with people, uh, you know, new and old, and that's what this call was. So this was fun. No, I've really enjoyed this. This was a great one. Those of you who haven't been at my website, go to StonehillWealthManagement.com. Click on the 401k tab. We got a Stonehill 401k service that you've probably heard about. It's great for businesses that are small businesses, businesses between zero and maybe 150 employees. Uh, we provide love and service to the employees about how to plan and invest for retirement and a whole host of other uh, benefits that we give. It's all on the site. Check it out, stonehill401k.com. We create startup plans and help with selecting the investments and educating and advising our clients on how to invest and how to best reach their retirement goals. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.